Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job. If you've come to the book of Psalms, you've come too far, turn back. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 539. If you're a guest with us today, we've been working through uh, this wonderful and difficult Old Testament book. And I want to encourage you this morning, we are on Sermon 6. We're halfway through the series. And so, thank you for enduring and don't give up. All right, it's going to get easier in the weeks to come, so hang in there. And I thought it would be helpful this morning while you're finding your place there to just give a brief review where we've been because in this section of the book, it is very easy to get lost, okay? So if you'll remember in chapters 1 and 2, we, the curtain was pulled back and we were able to see the heavenly scene and the conversation between God and Satan concerning Job. And there we found the reasons for Job's suffering and affliction. And then in chapter 3, one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible, we saw and examined Job's lament over his suffering. And then beginning in chapter 4, we saw and were introduced uh, to Job's first friend in chapters 4 through 7, the man named Eliphaz. And he gave his first speech and Job responded. And then in chapters 8 to 10, we met the second friend, Bildad. And he gave his first speech and Job responded to him. And this morning, we meet Job's third friend, Zophar. And Zophar will give his first speech, and then Job will respond to him, and that will end the first cycle of speeches. And then we'll move on from there next week. And so this morning we're going to be looking at chapters 11 to 14. We're going to be reading, to begin with, a section out of chapter 13, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, tormenting a wind-blown Leaf. Job chapter 13, and let's begin reading in verse 18. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. 
would encourage you this morning, as I have in previous weeks, to keep your Bible open and follow along, or you will be lost very quickly in this sermon this morning. I have a confession to make to you. I'm jealous of my neighbor. My neighbor never has to rake leaves. He has an enormous pin oak tree in his front yard that sheds year-round. And because of the way the wind commonly blows through our neighborhood, when all of those leaves fall off that tree into his yard and the wind blows, they move to my yard and then to my driveway where a vacuum is created and the leaves stay. For 18 years, my neighbor has never had to rake leaves. And so, if you were to come to my house on any given day in the fall, you would see dead leaves all over the place being driven by the wind through my yard into my driveway. And Job felt just like those leaves in my yard. He had lost all hope. And he feels as we come to chapters 11 to 14 that he is being tormented by his friends and he is being tormented by God. He describes himself as a dead leaf being driven and tossed by the winds of God's adversity, never finding relief and rest from the pain of his suffering. And I wonder this morning, how many of us in this room at one time or another in our lives could relate to Job's description of being a tormented leaf driven by the winds of adversity? As we come to this section, we meet Job's third friend, Zophar, and we find the discussion between Job and his friends accelerate to a new level of intensity. Listen and follow along carefully to Job's discussion with Zophar to see if this tormented, wind-blown leaf can find hope once again. So if you'll turn to chapter 11, the first thing that I want you to see this morning is the cruelty of Job's friend. The cruelty of Job's friend. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11, we see his attack on Job. The Bible says, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh... That God would speak and he would open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You'll notice that Zophar is extremely harsh and critical towards Job. Like Bildad, Zophar begins his speech by calling Job a windbag. In verse 2, 
Zophar seems to imply that Job's multitude of words is evidence of the error of his ways. You see, in wisdom literature, the use of many words is often associated with a person of folly rather than a person of wisdom. And so, Zophar's question in verse number two implies that he regards Job as a fool who talks way too much. And you'll notice in verse 3 that Zophar describes Job's words as babble and full of mockery. According to Zophar, what Job said about God was not true, and all of Job's words amounted to nothing but mere idle chatter from someone who likes to hear himself talk a lot. He furthers his accusation of Job in verse number 4, stating that what Job said about himself was also a lie, because there is no way that Job is clean before God. According to Zophar, because Job continues to maintain his integrity, he is trying to give the impression that he is sinless. But Zophar wants him to know that he knows that Job is hiding secret sin in his life. Now let me be clear for a moment. All of these accusations that Zophar is making towards Job are not true. Yes, Job has said some very harsh things towards God, but he's never mocked God. And yes, Job is claiming his innocence. But he's never once contended that he is sinless. And so Zophar is way off base. Now in verse number 5, Zophar wishes that God would step into this conversation. And he would answer Job once and for all and silence him. And show Job that the counsel of all of his friends is right. And if you look in verse number 6, according to Zophar, if God were to speak to Job, he would reveal to him the secrets of wisdom because God is manifold in his understanding. And what Zophar is saying to him is, Job, you think that you are wise, but God is manifold in wisdom. There's a side of wisdom that humanity sees, and there's a side of wisdom that only God sees. And Job, my wish for you is that God would speak to you and he would reveal to you true wisdom because you are way off base. And Job, you are sitting here complaining towards us and towards God. And what you need to realize, now I'm not making this up. Look at verse 6. This is what Zophar says to him. What you need to realize, Job, is your suffering is bad. But God has withheld suffering from you. Your sin is worse than what you're getting, Job. God has only unleashed a percentage of his punishment on you. So instead of complaining, you should actually be grateful to God for the position that you're in. Harsh. Harsh attack. Then in verses 7 to 12 of chapter 11, we see his arrogance. You'll remember Eliphaz and Bildad expounded and defended the justice of God. Zophar will defend the wisdom of God. And in these verses, Zophar asks Job six questions, aggressively attacking Job's knowledge of God. 
In verse 7, he poses two questions, and each of these questions anticipate a negative answer. He says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And the obvious answer from Job is, no, no one can fathom the mysteries of God. And then in verses 8 and 9, Zophar reminds Job that God's wisdom is higher than heaven, it's deeper than Sheol, it's longer than the earth, and it's broader than the sea, and it is a complete waste of time for Job to ask for a meeting with God because Job cannot stand in the presence of this kind of wisdom. And then in verses 10 and 11, Zophar reminds Job that God is not accountable to anyone That God can arrest and imprison anyone he chooses. He can convene the court. He can pronounce the sentence. And no one can say a word to God in protest. He tells Job that God knows who is foolish. And God knows who is wise. He knows who is pure. And he knows who is living in sin. And since Job is suffering, it is clear to Zophar and the rest of the friends that Job is being punished For his sin that God has seen in him iniquity, God has pronounced him guilty, and God has delivered the sentence of suffering for the punishment of his sin. And just when you thought that Zophar couldn't say anything more harsh and difficult than what he's already said, look at what he says in verse number 12. He quotes a proverb And he says, but a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born. And what he is saying to Job through this uh, proverb is, Job, it is clear to everyone. Why isn't it clear to you that you are simply a fool? And the likelihood of you ever getting wisdom or understanding the ways of God is about as likely as a wild donkey giving birth to a human. That's what his friend says to him. How would you like to sign up for that counseling? And then in verses 13 to 20 of chapter 11, he gives Job his advice. And he tells Job that even though he believes that Job is foolish, that there is still hope for him. That no matter how great his guilt and no matter how far he has strayed from God, there is a way for him to go back to the Almighty. And according to Zophar, the key to Job ending his suffering and getting back to God is to repent of his sin and turn back to God. So in verses 13 and 14, Zophar tells Job that if he would confess his sins and repent by preparing his heart and stretching out his hands to God in prayer and putting iniquity far from him and removing injustice and not allowing it to dwell in him, God would indeed forgive Job and restore his blessings. This is the pattern, Job. This is how you have to confess, and this is how you have to repent, Job. And when you do that, God will end your suffering, and he will return his blessings. And then in verses 15 to 19, Zophar tells Job the seven blessings that he could expect to experience from God if he would confess his sin and repent. 
He tells him in verse 15 that his appearance would be restored and he would be able to lift his face without blemish. In verse 15, he tells him that his life would be secure and without fear. In verse 16, he tells Job that Job would be able to forget about all of his misery. In verse 17, he tells Job that his life would shine brighter than the new day sun and the darkness of his life would be replaced with the light of the morning. In verse 18, he says that Job would feel secure and regain a sense of hope and he would be able to rest in safety. In verse 19, he says that he'd be able to lie down and no longer be afraid. And in verse 19, he says, Job, when God restores you, people will come to you for advice again. Now, all this sounds really great from Zophar, doesn't it? But you cannot forget at this point in the book that if Job confesses sins that he did not commit, Satan wins. Satan's whole point is that Job has a contractual relationship with God. And that the only reason Job serves God is because of God's blessings. And all three of Job's friends have encouraged him to confess and repent of sins that he's never committed so he could regain his blessing. And if Job does this, then Satan is proven true. And Job only worships God for blessings. And so Job cannot do what his friends are advising him to do. Now notice in verse 20 that Zophar's final words serve as a grave warning to anyone who would rebel against God. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last And what Zophar is saying to Job is, Job, in spite of all the warnings that I've given, you and people like you like to ignore God and you like to go your own way. And Job, if you continue to do this and if others follow your example, the way of escape will be lost to them. Now listen carefully to me, church. This is kind of a side note, but it's an important verse and it can't get lost in the overall understanding of the book of Job. What Zophar is saying to Job is actually true. That for a person who turns away from God, for a person who refuses to turn away from their sin and repent and turn towards God, a person who refuses to do that has lost all way of escape. And one day they will experience the full wrath and judgment of God for sin. In spite of all of his arrogance, in spite of all of his attacks, what Zophar is saying at the end of his speech is true. And I don't want anyone in this room to miss this truth just because we're studying the book of Job. A life wayward in sin and rebellion apart from God is destined for eternal destruction and separation from God. And God has made the way of escape for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you find yourself in rebellion and sin today, God has made the only way of escape for you through His Son, and I point you to Him. So how 
should we think about Zophar? Well, I have a couple application points for you. I'm sure you're surprised by that. Number one, Zophar is an example of how not to care for and minister to your friend when they're in pain. What Job needed in this situation was not harsh criticism and endless theological talk. What Job needed was a practical expression of godly help and godly comfort. Listen to me, church. When someone you know is suffering, they need the display of the gospel not only in your words, they need the display of the gospel in your works. When your friends are suffering, they need you to show them that you care. They need you to bring them a meal. They need you to help clean their house. They need you to watch their children. They need you to help with their shopping. They need you to meet needs that they are unable to meet because of the level of their pain and sorrow and suffering. And when you and I are caring for them, we should never feel like we have to do a lot of talking. Sometimes when our friends are hurting, the greatest wisdom displayed is just being there and being quiet. Zophar did none of that. Application number two. We learn from Zophar to be careful to diagnose someone else's pain. You and I must remember that a wrong diagnosis will always lead to a wrong treatment. And instead of cruelly attacking and accusing his friend of sin, Zophar should have been extending mercy, grace, kindness, and compassion. So be careful of your diagnosis. Application number three. Zophar is confident that he understands how God works in the world and that he can explain all of it to Job. He is more concerned with proving his point than understanding Job. And listen carefully. We need to remember that when a person hurts, the hurt is real to them, whether we think it is real or not, regardless of the reasons behind the hurt. And Zophar missed that. He gets caught up in the reasons for the hurt instead of listening to the hurt. And it's difficult to comfort a friend when you don't know how to listen. When all you want to do is correct their bad theology or their wrong way of thinking. And you want to tell them what you think God is doing in their life. And in chapter 13, Job will tell his friends three different times to listen to him. And so the question that we take away from Zophar is simply this. When you minister to someone who is hurting, are you more concerned about listening than you are about being heard? Zophar refused to listen. Well, we not only see the cruelty of Job's friend. In chapter 12 and in chapter 13, we also see the complaint against Job's friends. Now, if you've been following along, you remember that Eliphaz has argued from experience in his dream. 
Bildad has argued from the wisdom of the fathers of past generations. And Zophar has argued from the wisdom of God. Who could defend themselves against those kinds of arguments? Well, the answer to that is simply Job. And that's what he does in chapters 12 to 14. This is Job's longest speech. And you will see as we walk through some sections of this that it's one of the most important. It represents a decisive turning point in the conversation between Job and his friends. So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we see Job's rebuke. Job begins his complaint with sarcasm and scorn directed towards his friends. And in verse 2 of chapter 12, Job, listen, I, I can't make this up. This is how real and relevant your Bible is. Job tells his friends in chapter 2 that when they die, wisdom will die with them because there will be no one left on earth to tell everyone else how they should live. Job has found boldness. Then in verse number 3, he challenges his friend's declaration that they alone possess wisdom, reminding them that he is not inferior to them because he is also a wise man from the east. And if you study your Bible later, you'll see in chapter 12 and verse 3 and in chapter 13 and verse 2, he uses the same phrase, I am not inferior to you, reminding them that all of their arguments are common knowledge that they don't possess a market on the truth, and they have not said one thing that is new or profound. He rebukes his friends in verse 4 for being insensitive to him and referring to him as a laughingstock. And then he tells them in verse 5 of chapter 12 that their ease and their comfort in life has made them full of contempt towards those who are experiencing misfortune and suffering. And, and they're treating him as if he has slipped away from God. But now in verse 6 of chapter 12, this is a significant verse. Job displays his own wisdom to his friends. And look what he says. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. And he's telling them what you and I need to understand, and don't miss this verse. That you cannot simplify suffering to the retribution principle or to prosperity theology. That God blesses the good and God punishes the wicked. Notice what he says in verse 6. He tells his friends that this simply can't be true. If what their arguments are saying is true, then why do the tents of robbers, those who steal, why are they at peace? And why are those who provoke God and say hard things towards God, why are they secure? In other words, Job is saying to his friends that the blameless may actually be the ones who are suffering and the wicked may actually be the ones who are prospering. And friends, doesn't your life experience teach you that this is indeed true? Because this world is not final judgment. Job's problem is not with his friend's theology. I've tried to show you he believes the same thing they do. His problem is with how they're applying that theology to his life. He's innocent. In verses 7 to 12 of 
chapter 12, we see Job's ridicule. He gets even more pointed and sarcastic with his friends in verses 7 and 8. He tells them, and I'm not making this up. He, he tells them, if you really want wisdom, Zophar, you really want wisdom? Go talk to the beast of the earth. Go talk to the birds of the air. Go talk to the bushes of the earth. Go talk to the fish of the sea. All of creation could teach you about wisdom. And then he says in verse number 9, look at it. Who among all these in creation does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? He's saying to them, it is evident, Job, to everyone and everything in creation except for you three that my suffering is a result of God's will, not a punishment for sin. Now, something significant takes place in verse number 9. It's a great verse to underline in your Bible. You will notice that in the ESV, the text uses the word Lord, and it's all in capital letters. It is the name and the reference for the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh. And Job affirms by using God's covenant-keeping name, that everything in the created order, including his own adversity and suffering, ultimately goes back to the activity of Yahweh. Job, listen friends, he is not willing to diminish Yahweh's sovereignty over his life and over his suffering. Even in the midst of losing hope, even in the midst of being attacked by his friends, Job is still clinging to the sovereignty of God. And it's a good lesson for us because he says in verse number 10, in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Oh, dear friend, can't you see that even in the midst of Job's pain, he is holding on relentlessly to the character of his God and what he knows to be true. That God is sovereign over even the most intense moments of his pain and his suffering. And he will not let go of that truth. And you know what this means? This means that God is sovereign over what happens to everyone who lives in the earth. And Job says in verses 11 and 12 that God's sovereignty over human life should be as obvious as a relationship between an ear hearing words and a mouth tasting food. He will not let go of the character of God. And suffering friend, don't you learn a lesson from this? That in the midst of the greatest pain, you must Cling to what you know to be true about God. That's what he did. And then in chapter 13, verses 1 to 19, we see Job's resentment. In verses 1 through 5, it's really a repeat of what he says in the first part of chapter 12. He tells his friends once again that he's not inferior to them. But look at what he says in verse 4. He says, you whitewash lies, and because of your pride and your judgmental attitude, you lack compassion, and I view you, listen to what he tells them, as worthless 
physicians. They whitewashed lies. It's, it's as if they were working with drywall and they took the plaster and the putty to cover over the blemishes. And Job is saying, you are covering over the reality of the situation. You are afraid to dive into the deep mysteries of God. And so you just whitewash over my experience with your lies and you've misapplied the remedy for my pain. And you guys are worthless physicians. You know what he tells them? You're a bunch of quacks. You're, you're crazy. And then in verse 5, he says, you know what I long for the most? is those seven days and nights when all three of you were quiet because that was your greatest act of wisdom. Then as we begin, verse 6, down through the majority of the rest of chapter 13, Job pleads three times for his friends to listen to him in verse 6, in verse 13, and in verse 17. He tells them to listen to him in verse 6 because in verses 7 and 8, he charges them with trying to protect God's reputation by speaking falsely on God's behalf to protect him. And then in verses 9 to 12, Job literally wonders what would happen to his friends if God were to examine their lives and their faith the way God is examining Job. Do you see what he says in these verses? He says that they might be able to deceive others, but there's no way that they would deceive God. And that God would surely rebuke them, and His majesty would terrify them, and the dread of Him would fall upon them. And then, don't miss this, their wisdom that they've displayed to Job would amount to nothing but a pile of ashes like the very pile that all four of them are sitting on while this speech is taking place. And then he says at the end of verse 12 that if God were to judge them and examine them in this way, their lives would fall apart like a house of clay. And because the words of Job's friends were deceitful, and because their counsel was worthless, Job is clinging in chapter 13 to his desires in chapters 9 and 10 to have a meeting with God in court. And so he says in verses 13 to 19 of chapter 13 that he will boldly present his case before God. And even though it may cost him his life, Job's desire for vindication is worth the risk. Now notice verse 15 of chapter 13. This is one of those nuggets that's found deep in Job, that is so rich. And this is what he says in verse 15 of chapter 13. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This is one of the most famous verses in the book of Job. And many see Job's statement here in verse 15 as a great declaration of faith. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. But is that what Job is doing? Is he really declaring his faith in this verse? I don't think so. People that are much, much smarter than me in the Hebrew language say that verse 15 should be translated this way. Behold, he will slay me, 
I do not have hope. Behold, he will slay me. I do not have hope. And I think their translation is correct. I think it fits the context. Look at your Bible. All the way back in verse 13, he says, Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. And then in verse 14, he says that he knows that he's risking his life to appear before God. He says, why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? And he's saying he knows that he could die by approaching God in this manner. And then let's skip verse 15 for a minute and go to verse 16. And he says, this will be my salvation that the godless shall not, become, shall not come before him. What is Job saying in all of this? He's saying, I know I'm risking my life to go before God, but he will not destroy those who are innocent. And if I can just get before him, I know I can prove my innocence. And even if I'm wrong, even though he may slay me and I'll have no hope, look at the end of verse 15. Yet I will argue my ways to his faith. He's saying, what could I lose? If my suffering doesn't end, I'm going to die. If I approach God and I'm not allowed to approach him, I'm going to die. But maybe, just maybe, if I can get in God's presence and plead my case, I'll live. And it's worth the risk. He's lost all hope. And yet... He's wrestling with his God. So how are we to think about this? Well, number one, the arrogance of Job's friends is just utterly shocking. But lest we judge them too quickly, we must admit that this form of pride can be a snare to every single one of us in this room. Our modern society that we live in with all of our technological gains and our intellectual superiority has decided in large part that it does not need God and it is no longer accountable to God. We have deceived ourselves into thinking that we just need to believe in our own strength, in our own intellectual abilities, and we'll be able to unravel and manage the mysteries of life and the complexities of life, including suffering. Our society is saying that we no longer need God's grace and we no longer need God's wisdom. And I would just say to you this morning, friends, all you have to do is look around this world today and see where that kind of thinking has led us. And Job's friends are just like that. They think they've got it all figured out. Application number two. Job was completely frustrated with his friends. Can't you hear it in his voice? Can't you see it in what he is saying back to them? And what we learn from this first round of discussions is that even though we may have the best of friends in our suffering, listen, church, in our suffering, we still have to contend with God. And Job, 
walked with God in times of his prosperity so that when the seasons of his pain arrived, his walk with God turned into a wrestling with God through his suffering so he could regain his hope. He had to depend on his God. And I'm trying to show you through the text that he never let go no matter what he said. He never let go. When we not only see the cruelty of Job's friend and the complaint against Job's friends, we see back in chapter 12, so you've got to go back to chapter 12 now, in verses 13 to 25. I told you you'd be lost if you didn't keep your Bible open. In verses 13 to 25 of chapter 12, I want you to see the confidence of Job's faith. The confidence of Job's faith. This is a powerful passage, and I'm, I'm going to read it because you're going to relate to it in the context of the world that we're living in this morning. With God, our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they, are, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loses the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. This is all true. Every single word that Job says in these verses is true. And in spite of all that Job has said about God, he still, as you can see in this text, really believes that God is sovereign and that God is controlling everything that happens in the world and everything that happens in his life by his wisdom and by his power. And so in verses 14 and 15, Job declares that God is sovereign over over nature, that what he destroys cannot be rebuilt. And what he locks up, it cannot be opened. That God can send a drought or God can send a flood and no one can stop him. And Job is teaching us and his friends that God is so overwhelmingly powerful that he can accomplish all of his sovereign, holy will, and no one can stand against him. And my dear friend, that is absolutely 100% true. In verses 16 to 22, Job says that God is sovereign over people. That he exercises his sovereign will with strength and sound wisdom to such a degree that no one can hinder his actions. In verse 16, his wisdom overwhelms both the deceived and the deceiver. In verse 17, he diminishes the wisdom of the court by leading the counselors of the court 
away from the court, stripped of their dignity, and by turning judges into utter fools. In verse 18, he removes the power of kings so that their authority is reduced to nothing. In verse 19, he strips the religious leaders of their power and authority, and he overthrows the mighty. In verse 20, he deprives speech of trusted advisors, and he takes away the discernment of the elders. In verse 21, he pours contempt on princes, and the powerful lose their respect and strength. And in verse 22, all, listen, all of the hidden things that man keeps in darkness, God brings to light. He's sovereign over everyone. And then in verses 22 to 25, Job declares that God is sovereign over the nations. My friends, these verses will encourage you this morning. They're a help to you today. He says that God is able to make a nation great, and he is able to bring a nation to its knees no matter how powerful it is, and he can even destroy it. He can give a nation freedom, or he can keep it in bondage in verse 23. In verses 24 and 25, he can take, listen, he can take away the understanding of a nation's leaders and make them wander in waste, groping in the dark and staggering like a drunken man. That's what God can do. He's sovereign over the nations. No power on earth can withstand the wisdom and the power of Almighty God. He is sovereign over the universe. Prince, he's not sitting in heaven passively watching the events of the world take place. Your God, my God, he is sovereign. He is active and he is in control. And he does what he pleases in all of creation. He does what he pleases in the lives of every single person on the earth. He does what he pleases among and in and through the nations. He does what he pleases in Job's suffering, and he does what he pleases in your suffering. You are not God. He is, and he is sovereign over all things. And people who are proud think they know better than God's judgment and justice can't stand what I've just proclaimed to you. We like to be in control. We think we're in charge. And Job says, that's simply not true. This is the God that we serve. And I want you to know this morning, this, the reason why I'm emphasizing this, the reason why I made this a separate point in the sermon and made the sermon longer is because this will help you and this will help me. What will get you through suffering? The sovereignty of God. What will get you through persecution and hardship and difficulty in living in this sin-filled world? The sovereignty of God. He is over your life. Nothing catches Him by surprise. Bow down to Him and worship Him and serve Him with absolute confidence because that's what Job did. This is a man who's lost hope and yet... He is speaking with confidence about his God. And that is just what you and I need in our suffering. So let me help you think about it a minute. Did you really catch what he's saying in these verses? 
You have to ask yourself this morning, do you really believe that the God we came to worship today is a God of wisdom and might? You have to ask yourself, do you really believe that? Do you realize that this very moment, God is working in our world? That this very moment, this sovereign God is working in our nation. He's working in our city. He is working in this room, this very moment, drawing people to himself through his sovereign power and wisdom. He's working in your family's life, and he is working in your life. The question is, do you believe that? And do you wait upon him in your times of suffering and questioning and difficulty, believing that he's sovereign, believing that he's working, even though it doesn't feel like it, and even though you cannot see it? Job's friends were interested in platitudes of theology. Job was interested in God. So is he big enough? Is your God big enough to enable you to embrace the mysteries and the complexities of living in this sin-filled world and lead you and demand of you to bow before him and worship? Is that your God? That was Job's. Application number two. Because God is sovereign... His work in our lives at times is mysterious. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And there are times that God in his sovereign wisdom and power will lead us into storms and into dark valleys. Are you okay with that? Application number three. We've become good at faking it until we make it. And the problem with this philosophy of faith and living is that when the storm comes and you've been faking it, you have no anchor for your soul and the waves run over top of you and drown you. Superficiality, surface level, platitude Christianity will never anchor you in the storm. You have to go deep with God. Are you? Are you content to skim the surface? Paul said it best. I'll quote him and move on. Listen to his doxology in the book of Romans about the wisdom and the power and the might of God and how it caused him to worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Did you hear it? The depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And listen to how he ends. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. From him, through him, to him, all things. That sounds like sovereignty to me. 
That sounds like a big God to me. And when you rest in a big God like that, you've got a soft pillow to lay down on at night. Well, can you hang in there just a few more minutes? I just need one of you to say yes. Okay. All right. Just one. One out trumps the other 200. I'm sorry. It's new math. It's new math. Job ends with a cry of frustration. In Job chapter 13 and verse 20 to the end of chapter 14. He's dismantled the arguments of his friends. He's declared his confidence in God's sovereignty. And now he turns his attention to God. And he deals with him. And in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, he asks for two pre-trial motions. He asks for God to withdraw his hand from him so he'd have the energy and the endurance to debate him. And he asks for God to stop terrifying him so he could stand confidently in God's presence. And then in verse 22 of chapter 13, Job says, God, if you'll do these two conditions, then you can speak first and I'll answer you. And if you'd rather defer, I'll speak first and you can answer me. I'm not making this up. Then in verse 23, he uses three main Bible words for sin as he pleads with God to tell him where he's there. God, show me my sin. Show me my iniquity. Show me my transgression. Show me where I've gone wrong and rebelled against you. But because God continues to remain silent, Job can't help but think that he's being punished for the sins of his youth. And by the way, that's what a lot of people who go through suffering in adult life think. That God is punishing them for the sins of their youth. And Job couldn't be further from the truth. In verses 24 and 25, this is where we get the title of the sermon. He says, God, why do you continue to torment me? I'm like a dried up leaf that's fallen off the tree. And you're just blowing me all over the place with your winds of adversity. God, like I'm a rotted piece of wood. I am dry chaff. You've been writing bitter things against me. God, why are you even noticing me? Why can't you just leave me alone? That's what he's saying to God. And then in chapter 14, he turns his attention away from his own suffering to the general suffering of all humanity. And he expresses all of his grievances against God for pain and suffering. And he explains all of the despair in his heart. In verses 1 through 6, he complains about the brevity of life, that life is fleeting. It's like a shadow. It quickly disappears. It's like a hired worker who puts in his time, and then he's replaced by another worker. And Job can't understand if life is so short, why God won't let him enjoy it, and why God just continues to punish him and give him misery and pain and sorrow. In verses 7 to 17, he complains about the finality of death. He compares the death of a human to the cutting down of a tree. And Job says, God, even when a tree is cut down and all that's left is the stump, if, if it's close to water, if it's close to a water source, God, it'll get renourished and sprouts will begin to bud again. But man, man, when, when they suffer and they die and they're put in the ground, they stay in there and no one notices them. God, man, when he dies, he, he's like a lake that dries up in a drought. And when a man dies, he 
dries up and no one notices him. And he says, I wish that I could just be put in Sheol until your anger is done with me. And then, God, if you want to, you could bring me back out of Sheol and I could be your friend again. And we could relate together and you could cover all my sins and we'd be back to the way things used to be once you're done punishing me with your anger. And then he concludes the chapter in verses 18 to 22, complaining about his absence of hope and how God destroys all of a man's hope. It's, it's really an honest chapter about his struggles. But here's what I need you to remember this morning, church. Job still doesn't have the right view of death. He's getting closer. I'm going to show you in a minute. He's getting closer He's progressed. Remember last week? Oh, if I could just have a mediator. Well, you know what he says this week? Look in verse 15, or 14 of chapter 14, excuse me. Verse 14 of chapter 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? You see his progression? Oh, If I could just have a mediator that could put one hand on God and one hand on me, all of this could be resolved. When a man dies, will he live again? Do you know how someone translated this verse? When you die, where will you live again? I like that translation. And here's the truth of the matter this morning, friends. Every single one of us is going to live somewhere when we die. And there's only two options, heaven with God or hell with Satan and his demons and all of the rest of humanity who has rejected Jesus Christ. Those are the only two options. I hate to tell you this morning that there is no such thing as purgatory. That is a man-made doctrine. It is not true. You'll find no hope or comfort in your life or in death in that doctrine. It is a false teaching. Two destinations, heaven or hell. And what determines the destination is what you do with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Do you receive what He did on the cross for you by dying for your sins and rising from the grave, having victory over sin, death, hell, the grave, and Satan? Or do you trust in yourself, hoping that one day the good will outweigh the bad in your life and God will accept you? Your good will never outweigh your bad. The scale will always be out of balance. And if you die apart from Jesus Christ, you will live again forever and eternity, but you will live in hell apart from God. Only a true Christian can answer Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? Because only a true Christian can answer that question with confidence the way Jesus Christ answered that question in his day. Do you know what he said? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? 
Do you? Do you believe that Jesus is resurrection and life? And even though you may die physically, you will live forever eternally in his presence? Do you believe that you will have life in him for all eternity? That's the question that you have to answer today. You see there in verse 14, he says at the end of the verse, all the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You know what the word renewal pictures? It pictures a garrison of soldiers that has been serving and they've been fighting the battle and they're weary and they've been moved away from the front lines and replaced with a new garrison of soldiers so that the weary ones can find rest and refreshment and hope. And do you know what Job is saying in this verse? If a man dies, he'll live again and there'll be renewal. The weariness of pain, the weariness of suffering, the weariness of the hardship of living in this sinful, cursed world will be replaced and will be renewed. Do you know what Job is saying? There's hope in that. Do you know what I want you to know this morning? That in Jesus Christ, there is hope. For every tormented, wind-blown leaf. If you'll just look to him. Let's pray.